listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Warm mission welcome to Dr. Robert Payton. <laughs> Part of leadership is trusting, right? <laughs> All right. I am. Uh, he said I'm a pro. I'm a psychologist, so forgive me my notes. I'm not a preacher by trade. Um, gosh, good morning, guys. This is some worship to you guys. Have. This is fun. Um, it is an honor to get to be with you guys this morning and, uh, and just to share some of uh, what my understanding is of God's vision for how we as the church can approach the throne with humility and grace in the midst of suffering, and we're all suffering with something. Um, I was just sharing with Jason this morning about uh, that, that I've, I'm a psychologist, so I self-diagnose, right? Um, but I, I deal with a tick disorder and uh, some obsessive and compulsive uh, thoughts and behaviors, and uh, most people don't notice it, but my wife sees it and my mom sees it. So, <laughs> so um, I'm right there with you in this stuff. Um, for the past couple of weeks, you guys have been exploring some issues uh, surrounding mental health. And for far too long, uh, I believe that the church has either been in the shadows with this or been in the light for all the wrong reasons. Um, you know, when it comes to social issues and the public's limited view, the church is no longer a place where the hurting and broken can come to receive grace and comfort and justice and acceptance and compassion. Uh, you know, we, we've failed at that. And we're often seen as uh, simply an exclusive club. Uh, you know, we're a judgmental club, one that you have to look a certain way or, or behave a certain way or dress a certain way to get in. And um, I just don't think that that's based on correct or complete information. Uh, I don't think that the church was intended to be an exclusive club. Uh, I think God intended that, that our club would be for everyone. Uh, and uh, one group that sometimes we push away is those in our community that are struggling with mental health. Um, and really, uh, what we would call mental illness uh, so we talk a lot about mental health, and, and sometimes it's easier to define the illness than the health part, and I think probably a lot of times in, uh, in the church we talk about what the health looks like, love other people, be compassionate, all those good things, but we don't always do a great job of defining the illness piece of it. Uh, so today I want to just clarify what I mean when I say, as a psychologist, mental illness. Uh, so particularly for us here to distinguish it from what we might mean as Christ followers, uh, from what we understand as sin. So the, the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, is the gold standard for medical diagnosis of mental health conditions. Uh, and it defines mental disorders in the following way here. Uh, a mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. So mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress or disability in social, occupational, or other important activities, and an acceptable, expectable, or culturally approved response to a common stressor or loss, such as the death of a loved one, is not considered a mental disorder. So that's straight out of the book there, and what we can take from that, I think, is that we're talking about big, heavy stuff, right? Not your every day-to-day, kind of moment-by-moment -moment struggles, but the things that really get in the way of our lives in a big way. Uh, so what does that all mean? It means that sin and mental illness are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, the New Testament Greek word hamartia is translated as sin, originally used as an archery term, and it represents any thought or behavior that misses the mark. 
So it's anything really that deviates us or someone else from our God-given path. And sin is discussed in the Bible as both a thing or a noun or an action or a verb. And certainly mental illness can capture both of these ideas. So let's say we've got a hypothetical man who's biologically predisposed to excessive alcohol use. Let's say his father and his grandmother were both alcoholics, and now he is unfortunately at much higher statistical risk for alcoholism. And this is in part due to his genes uh, passed down through the generations, but it's also in part due to the behaviors that he's picked up through modeling from those important people in his life through those same generations. It's hard to tease this out sometimes. And yet this predisposition to alcoholism is not sinful. Even the drinking of the alcohol itself is not sinful and certainly does not constitute a mental disorder. And so this man would cross the threshold to sin long before he qualifies for a specific mental disorder called alcohol use disorder. Uh, Sometimes we talk about it as alcoholism, right? Uh, So he sins, though, the moment that his drinking behavior becomes a barrier to his or anyone else's relationship with God. So obviously we know in the Bible, drunkenness is specifically prohibited in Scripture as it sets a poor example, can cloud judgment, and lead people away from God. But the Apostle Paul does not condemn the act of drinking alcohol itself. Rather, he says in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One way to interpret Paul's words here is that if you're over 21, right, uh, sharing a cold beer or a glass of Merlot with a close friend as you fellowship, share life together, and support each other on your spiritual journeys can actually be glorifying God. Some of you may see this differently, I understand, but the main point here is that sin and mental disorders are not necessarily the same thing. You've got to be careful about that. So we've seen this one example that sinfulness as it relates, say, to alcohol use is not in the drinking itself, but in the consequences of the drinking. So when it begins to take away from the glory of God and leads others away from God, it causes us to miss the mark or step outside of God's calling or purpose on our lives. And this could happen in a single event, at one party. It could happen just in a moment, right? We can always lead ourselves or someone else away in very brief moments, and that would be the sin. The mental disorder called alcohol use disorder, on the other hand, involves a pattern of behavior over time that involves consuming increasing amounts of alcohol, difficulty cutting back, cravings, tolerance, withdrawal, social impairment, and other symptoms. We know this, right? We've heard this before. Many people consider alcohol to be a social lubricant, right? Something that helps them to feel more comfortable socially, and this is actually seen generally as acceptable in modern American culture. The use of alcohol to numb the mind to the point that you can function socially is by definition a problem. It means you're putting yourself at risk of sinning because your normal social intuition and judgment won't be functioning optimally or at their full capacity. So hopefully we can see the difference between sinful behavior and mental disorders. So that said, much of the time mental illness can seem like a thing, that noun, that's a stumbling block that gets in the way of my accomplishing what God has for me and his given purposes for my life. It might be something in you or maybe something in someone else with whom you're close and they tend to impact you. Your mental health issue might be anxiety, difficulty regulating moods, psychosis, extreme pridefulness and selfishness, alcohol and substance abuse, gambling and sex addiction, obsessive thoughts, compulsive behaviors, explosive and violent behavior, pathological lying, chronically and pervasively poor relationships, overly rigid thinking, or a host of other issues, right? We don't have time today to go over all of the possibilities, but my, my hope is that today, After today, you'll have a sense for what I might be able to do to start addressing your own struggle, whether I just mentioned it or not. 
So what is it that gets in the way for us of seeking help? We've heard a little bit about this the last couple of weeks. And the theme of this series is it's okay not to be okay. As you've heard the past couple of weeks about Paul's thorn in his flesh, his weaknesses and his trials, hopefully one of the main things you've taken away is that though our earthly problems might be outside of our control to a degree, we can seek comfort in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with those around us that God's placed in our lives, and we can even be, in kind of a weird and sick biblical twisted way, we can even maybe be grateful for our struggles as they refine and sanctify us toward being mature believers in Christ. But as grateful as we might be for the growth produced by our faith and, and the endurance that we have in that, Paul says, we're going to finish the race, right? We're going to be eager for that end of the race. And your race might look different to you than it does to someone running their own race who's not had the perspective of being present in your shoes for your entire race. I used to run cross country in high school, and uh, I wasn't very good at it. And I think part of the problem was that my heart just wasn't fully in it. I think it was something that a scrawny little guy like me could do and still be okay at. Uh, but for whatever reason, I still found myself running these three-mile races at the crack of dawn on Saturday mornings in the fall of my freshman and sophomore year in high school. Um, I almost never meddled in any races, and I remember running the Sunny Hills Invitational in my sophomore year, and I ended up crossing the finish line 31st in that race, and the top 30 runners received medals. <laughs> I was really bummed that I didn't get a medal, but that was not even close to the most embarrassing thing that I experienced that race. Uh, one thing you have to understand about my family, and it sounds like maybe some of y'all in this church, as, as you cornhole, have this in common with me, um, is that my family is highly competitive. Uh, you should see us just play board games. You know, we crack out cranium and, and the world ends. Um, even the directions can get into a competition of who's going to give the directions the best. It's, it's pretty bad. Uh, so it can get pretty intense. And my dad, to my chagrin as a teenager, used to go to my soccer games and whatever other sport I was in. I need a wild thing about me, of course, uh, across the field. Um, my mother, even better, as she would run up and down the sidelines at our soccer games, uh, she would jump and try to head the ball for us from 30 yards away across the field, and she still will do that. Um, but whatever we're doing, we get into it, and we want to win. Uh, so, so back at the Sunny Hills Invitational, I was feeling pretty exhausted as I got to be about a quarter mile from the finish line, and I knew I was doing okay, but not great, and really at that point I knew I needed to really push if I wanted to even have a chance at a medal, which we know how that turned out. Um, so I turned on the afterburners and I just, I gave it all I had. I could feel the wind whipping in my face and I could just feel myself flying down the finish line around this corner through the trees. I could see the finish line. And then I saw out of the corner of my eye running toward these flags that marked this final stretch toward me. There was a woman running and it was my mom and she had been crisscrossing the race course cheering me on, and I don't know how it's possible given how fast I thought it was flying toward the finish, but she began jogging backwards, easily keeping pace with me and taking pictures with her giant camera, You've seen that, right? Um, you know, and just doing her best, I'm sure, to encourage me, and I think she was doing her best to build me up as I strained my legs and tried to breathe at the same time. Uh, the sight of my 40-year-old mother jogging backward next to me and kind of encouraging me to keep up with her, really put my race in perspective. I was not flying toward the finish line, but rather just kind of jogging slowly and dragging my feet. And 
I'm eternally grateful for the love of my parents. Uh, I appreciate their involvement in my life, their hunger to see me succeed, uh, not, not for their own benefit, but so that I could have an easier life than they did as a young couple with four kids and not a whole lot of money coming in. Um, they're wonderful parents, but that day at the race, it was especially hard to receive that support because it really put in perspective how not fast I was on that race course. And, and then, of course, shortly after that embarrassment, I didn't get the medal, so that was awesome. Uh, when I compared my mother's ease at running that same stretch of race to my own, I felt even more tired. It wasn't her fault. It was just the reality that we were running very different races that day. And as we look at our lives and our struggles, I hope that we can each begin to look at our own struggles and see that we've each been running a race and that each race has its share of difficulties. Uh, If your personal race involves mental illness or someone near and dear to you is wrestling with mental illness, we need to figure out a way, as Jason was talking about last week, for you to move forward and begin to cope with it, to, to come out of hiding, as he said. Even if it's something, that mental illness, that maybe you might not ever be fully rid of. Right? Paul kept his thorn in the flesh, right? So there are two primary ways that we tend to cope with difficult situations. We've got problem-focused coping and emotion-focused coping. I'm looking at Michelle. She knows what's, what I'm talking about here. Uh, if we have some measure of control over the situation, problem-focused coping can actually be really helpful because if we remove the source of the pain and difficulty, a lot of times the pain itself will subside. However, if we don't have much control over the situation... We don't have much control over the source of the difficulty. We can spin our wheels, become frustrated and embittered about our lot in life, and we can start to feel down about ourselves and our powerlessness. And this is where emotion-focused coping can become helpful. Uh, So Paul's discussion of how God's grace is sufficient for him in 2 Corinthians and, and how his trials produce perseverance and spiritual maturity in James, these are examples of emotion-focused coping. So despite Paul receiving special treatment as a prisoner and getting to stay in a rented home rather than a standard Roman prison cell, and this is, of course, to say nothing of the many times that he was beaten and stoned and left for dead, just being a world traveler, that house arrest situation in itself would have been different. It would have been difficult for him, let alone the shame that being in chains can bring to our lives. So despite his difficult situation, he was still able to maintain an attitude of joy, right? We look at Philippians, I'm joyful, by shifting his thoughts to the work being done, preaching the gospel in the churches that he had planted around the known world. He couldn't remove the source of the problem, so he altered his cognitive and emotional responses to the problem. Some people would have us believe that coping is a simple thing to do. Just say no to temptation, right? The just say no campaign that failed miserably for the police and against drugs, right? Uh, just say no to temptation. Just move on. Just get over it. Um, some of you may be familiar with the classic Mad TV skit uh, where Bob Newhart plays a therapist and he's got one approach to all problems and it's simply stop it. If, if you haven't seen it, YouTube it today. It's hilarious. Best six minutes of your day. Um, But in the scene, he politely listens to a woman's concerns about an eating disorder, difficult family dynamics, failures in dating, and then yells at her to stop it in this narrow, unempathic way of looking at coping with difficulties is hilarious in the show, but unfortunately somewhat common, especially among traditional men. Buck up. Be a man. Deal with it. These are messages we regularly send to men and boys and and sometimes to women and girls as well. Just get over it. This past weekend, uh, my family went up the hill here um, 
to Helping Hands Family Camp at Thousand Pines Christian Camp. Uh, if you've never been to camp as a family, particularly a Christian camp that includes corporate worship and family devotional time, I highly recommend it as a way to not only have fun doing paintball with each other and shooting BB guns and all that good stuff, but also to connect spiritually and to take an intentional look at the ways that you can be growing together and serving together. But anyway, uh, my two boys were with us, and uh, they both went to child care activities during the main chapel services, and they call this their class, uh, even though the three-year-old just watches VeggieTales movies and drinks juice and eats graham crackers. Uh, but Jackson, our five-year-old, actually got to hear a Bible story and do some kind of arts and crafts project each service. And now, my Jackson, he's a real sweetheart, and sometimes, for instance, when my wife comes downstairs in the morning after getting ready, Jackson will look out up at her and say, Mommy, you look beautiful today, and with, with no prompting from me, I promise. Um, you know, her heart melts, and I just swell with pride seeing the, just the kind and complimentary heart of my little man. Um, but for all his sweetness, he's also a bit on the shy side, and he tends to be more of an internalizer when it comes to his feelings. So like most five-year-olds, there are many things that seem small to us parents that can feel like a huge deal to a five-year-old like Jackson. So at camp this weekend, Jackson's class had talked about how the Israelites had conquered the city of Jericho. They learned about how spies were sent into the city, how people marched around the city, blew their trumpets, and God tore the walls down to give them victory in their obedience. For their art project to help them remember and talk about the story with their parents, they made a paper mask. Each kid got to make their own little mask to represent the spies going into Jericho. Apparently, this is spies. <laughs> the mask was simply a... a Thin eye covering a la Robin uh, from the old Batman TV show, but just cut out of paper and tied with a string. Unfortunately, Jackson's mask broke almost immediately uh, before I was able to pick him up that evening. And I didn't know it, but uh, it had broken. And when I arrived at the classroom, I was confused as I made eye contact with him through the glass on the door. And then he promptly hid under a table as I entered the room. So I signed him out, and I grabbed his coat, getting ready to go, and I walked over to him, and then he scurries away and hides behind a pole in the middle of the room. So not wanting to chase him around the room, I, I just sat on the floor and called him over to me, and he sheepishly approached, and I could see that there was a tear in his, in his eye, and, and uh, his eyes were a little red, and he came and he sat on my lap, and I asked him what was wrong. And he told me that his mask had broken, right? Big tragedy in a five-year-old's life, right? My mask. And apparently the staff member running his classroom had immediately fixed the mask with some tape, and Jackson was actually already wearing it as he sat on my lap. So I told him it looked great, but that, of course, did little to soothe him. And when I asked him why he was hiding from me, he said, I didn't want you to see me sad. And, and this broke my heart, first because I love my son and I never want to see him hurting, but second, because as a psychologist, I've tried to raise my kids to be emotionally aware and be able to talk about their, their feelings productively, and this has not always gone well, as, as you might imagine. Uh, but I was both sad and proud in that moment in his classroom. I, I was sad because he was sad. I was sad with him, right? We talk about empathy a lot. So I was sad. But I was proud that he had overcome that secondary feeling of shame to bravely show me that primary feeling he had his sadness. I reminded Jackson that I always want to know how he's feeling and that he doesn't need to hide anything from me, that there was nothing to be ashamed of. Now, I'm not sure Jackson fully understands the concept of shame at a, a cognitive level, right? He's five. But he certainly has an emotional understanding of it. Uh, it it's essentially, shame is essentially disgust with ourselves. 
We look at something we've done, we have a strong negative experience of ourselves in light of a behavior or a trait. Jackson experienced this in the classroom when he didn't want his own dad to see his sadness. So for many of us, we might see the symptoms of mental illness in ourselves or our loved ones, and we don't reach out for help. Maybe we think we can just tough it out, stop it, just get over it. Maybe we feel so overwhelmed that we can't possibly even think of what the first step might be. Maybe we feel a bit of shame or embarrassment with ourselves about how bad our situation is or how unbearable our symptoms are, and we just don't seek help. Maybe another reason we don't seek help in times where coping becomes difficult is a common Christian reason. God's got this, right? We see in here so many Christian cliches and platitudes these days, and and so many memes and shallow interpretations of Scripture that we have to guard against surface-level interpretation of God's intentions with his written word. I don't bring these up to disparage their use as a meditation tool throughout the day as we continually focus and refocus ourselves back on God's plan and presence in our lives, but I do want to make sure to address the all-too-common use of very brief passages of Scripture out of context, or, or worse, maybe heretical cliches in the practice of counseling Christians. So mental illness is complex and, and seldom is the solution as simple as memorizing a Bible verse. So let's take a look at, at maybe a couple of these memes and just consider how they can potentially be helpful, but also potentially harmful if we use them flippantly or, or casually or exclusively even, right? If this is all we do. Um, someone greater than me is taking care of my problems. God, right? I don't know what scripture verse that is, but it speaks to a sentiment we have, right? That we want to put all of our stuff on God so we don't have to worry about it anymore. But what I see when, when I look at this is that's taking responsibility off of my plate. It's putting it all on God, and I'm just sitting around waiting for a miracle, and I'm not taking ownership of my life and using the tools God's given me. Um, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything be prayerful. Yes, but what's missing from this is the rest, right? If this is all we give somebody and we just throw this platitude out there, they're missing the bigger picture here, right? That it's it's not just as simple as, as, this is basically the Christian stop it, right? Stop it, just pray about it. Right? God's got this. And yeah, I think he does. But I think there's more to the story and we need to help people unpack scripture a little better than we do in some of these memes. This is great if you're just taking a couple minutes to meditate and you're just focusing. God's got this. Right? What, for me, I, you know, I, I deal with tics and these, these obsessions. And, and um, you know, so for me, sometimes I just take a deep breath and, and I remember one of these statements. And I use that for myself. But it's, it's not really to counsel myself, it's to recenter myself. I think we need to be aware of that difference. So we see in here so many Christian cliches and platitudes, right? And, and I think maybe for a more detailed example, we can take a look at a pretty common one here, Jeremiah 29, 11. You guys familiar with this verse? Have we, have we seen this? Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, right? So I hear it at almost every graduation ceremony I attend and been in higher education for several years, so I'm going to two or three of these a year. I have that, that just, it plays in my head year round. I can't get rid of it. Another one of these moments every time it comes up, tears. Um, so my understanding of how most Christians think about and interpret this passage is that they're looking at it incorrectly and often in a way that can increase shame and stigma for anybody afflicted with mental illness. So the standard feel-good interpretation goes something like this. God loves you. He doesn't want to see you suffer. And someday God will take this problem away and your life on earth will have less suffering and pain. Sounds nice, right? We feel good. 
And we often talk about this at graduation because the graduation speaker is looking for a biblical passage about being successful in our respective fields of study. Hope in a future, right? They're looking to encourage each other and the hope that God has fun and impactful things in store for them now that they've graduated. And what these interpretations are getting wrong is that this is not God's promise to them at all in that passage. What God has promised here is specifically for the Israelites in exile in Babylon. He plans to bring them out of exile as a group. The promise is not to individual Israelites, but to a nation. Generations of Israelites will have been enslaved, tortured, beaten, taken from their homelands, robbed of their children, and lived in extreme poverty and sickness, perhaps for their entire lives during this several decades-long exile. They never personally experienced the prosperity and lack of harm that is so often implied by those who reference this passage. And what we can, I think, as modern Christians take away from this passage is very similar to what you've heard the past couple weeks in this series, that God has a plan for us, but that journey usually includes suffering, right? In fact, God often uses our suffering as a way to keep us humble, to teach us to depend on him, and to allow us to work out our own salvation, our own spiritual salvation in such a way that we know it was not received through our own works, but through the grace of God alone. And the Israelite salvation discussed in Jeremiah 29, 11 is simply a prelude to and a foretaste of the New Testament narrative of Jesus' salvation of the entirety of humanity. It has little to do with our current earthly suffering being taken away and everything to do with our eternal reward in heaven where there will be no more suffering. Our God is faithful, amen? Just not always in the way I desire in a given moment or season. So we have to be careful in the way that we interpret Scripture because a casual reading can sometimes lead to stigma for someone who hears, God's going to take away my suffering, and then maybe feels ashamed that they still have their schizophrenia diagnosis. They just can't kick that heroin addiction. Maybe they didn't pray enough, or maybe just God doesn't love them because he's allowing them to suffer. This is just bad theology. It's misinformation. So you've heard the past couple of weeks about a 2013 study by LifeWay Research, and they examined various perspectives within the church about mental illness. And in this figure here, we see that nearly half of self-identified, born-again, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians believe that they can, with prayer and Bible study alone, overcome mental illness. Now, this is only one of four questions in this particular study, and they don't better define the term overcome for us. They don't do that any further for us, but, but this seems to suggest that many of us, even maybe some of us in this room today, don't see the need for seeking outside help, be it from a pastor, a psychologist, a social worker, a medical doctor. Even if we exclude pastors from that list, we've got thousands of years of human knowledge about the body, the mind, and what can go wrong medically with both that half of us apparently are just prepared to throw away when it comes to healing mental illness. If you broke your leg or you had high blood pressure, would you go see your medical doctor? Yeah, of course you would. You wouldn't just pray about it and read about God's healing power to fix your broken leg or your high blood pressure. Now, God can certainly heal your broken leg, and he can certainly lower your blood pressure if he wants to, but for whatever reason, he doesn't typically do that for us. And I have to imagine that it's partly due to his parenting style of allowing natural consequences to shape our behavior even if we've been fully forgiven for the behavior that led to our pain and our eternal consequences have already been removed. So this is a much bigger conversation than we have time today, but I'd be happy to talk about it with anybody if you'd like to uh, at another time. Uh, so, so if we go to a professional to set our broken bones, 
why would we be so dubious about seeing a professional trained in addressing broken hearts and minds and behaviors? Especially as these typically have at least a partial biological cause. Now, there, there are plenty of Christian medical doctors, psychiatrists, marriage and family therapists, and psychologists out there, and if it's important to you that your provider shares your values, you can certainly find one. I'm one of those, right? So let, let's talk about what we can do to actually reach out for help and why it's important that we actively pursue help rather than just waiting around for our miracle. So typically the first step toward healing, whether biological, psychological, relational, or spiritual, involves making an intentional, brave decision to get help. Again, we heard about coming out of the shadows last week. So when we see Jesus healing people throughout his ministry, it happens typically because either the afflicted individual makes a bold decision to actually reach out for help, literally sometimes, or friends and family plead directly with Jesus for help. When he was there, that was their version of prayer, right? Two great examples of this are the woman afflicted with chronic bleeding, presumably a problem with her menstruation, and the paralyzed man lowered through a roof. So we can read in Luke 8 here, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know the power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, this woman would likely have been seen as shameful and unclean in that culture, given Jewish rules around blood and menstruation thousands of years ago. And yet she pursued Jesus boldly, even brazenly reaching out to touch his cloak in great faith. And her faith, along with her actions in pursuit of healing help, healed her. Note here, it was not simply believing that Jesus could heal her, but actual pursuit of help that eventually facilitated her healing. We see also here in Mark 2, the story of a paralyzed man and his industrious and dedicated friends. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. It's dedication, right? And they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Notice their amazement is at healing the physical body. People are often enamored with Jesus' physical healing in the story and impressed with the actions of the man's friends. But there are a couple other things that I want us to take away from this passage today. And first, Jesus prioritized forgiveness and erasing the man's eternal suffering to come over easing the man's earthly burden and suffering through physical healing. 
In fact, it appears that Jesus may not have even intended or planned to heal the man's physical condition at all until the teachers of the law challenged his authority. We don't know that for sure, but we see that, that Jesus, being God, could have likely healed this man without the substantial efforts of the man's friends to get the man up on the roof and somehow dig a hole and lower him through the roof safely to Jesus' feet. As Jesus entered the city, there's a chance that he may have seen the man at the entrance of the city. Many physically disabled individuals hung out at the city gates in ancient times to beg for charitable contributions, much like our homeless today, uh, many of whom have a mental illness, often beg for money at the entrances to our cities, our, our freeway off-ramps. It was the same thing then. We don't know whether Jesus saw this man earlier in the day or whether he knew that the friends were actively working to get the paralyzed man on the roof. But if Jesus could know the thoughts of the teachers of the law, he certainly may have been able to stop the process Save the friends all this trouble by healing their friend and forgiving him without all the hassle. So why didn't he? One possible reason is that he used the man's situation as a way to teach and reach the teachers of the law and everyone who was watching. He appears to have used the man's situation as a way to bring more people to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus generally likes to have us work for our healing. Not many free lunches from Jesus. Loaves and fishes aside. Uh, remember the blind man that was only healed once he washed the Jesus spit mud out of his eye in the river? Could Jesus have given him a free pass and simply said, go and see clearly? Of course he could. But Jesus typically asks us to participate in our healing. And this brings us back to the idea that we have to make the decision to do something new and different in our lives to obtain healing. Yes, we should read scripture and meditate on it daily. We, we should be in prayer throughout the day so we can stay in step with the Spirit's calling on our lives and our decisions. And we should also be reaching out to others for help. We should lean on our families and our friends and pastors and professionals and other people who are experiencing the things that we're experiencing. Let's examine a few passages in scripture that give us more specific prescriptions for how we can make use of the abundant medical psychological, social, and spiritual resources that God has blessed us with as the church of Christ. Um, so we see in Mark here, oh, that's okay. So carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Sounds a lot like a support group to me. All right, be around some other people so that they can be with you, right? Be with other people that are suffering with you. And Luke, he, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, talking about the Good Samaritan, pouring on oil and wine. These were medical interventions back in the day. Uh, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So we see it's okay to do medical intervention. In fact, the guy who did the medical intervention was the only one in the story who did the right thing, according to Jesus, right? So it's okay. Go see your doctor. If there's a pill for what you've got, take it. See if it helps. It may not. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for a lot of people. Check it out. See if there's a way, right? God made the things that went into our medicine, right? So go with that. Uh, in Romans 12 and 2 Corinthians 10 here, we see a similar idea here. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your thoughts. 2 Corinthians, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. This is what we do in therapy, it's not magic, right? We're not doing weird, hokey stuff. Most therapists aren't, right? It's, it's going in and learning to think in new ways and, and behave in new ways. And this can change the way that we feel. And it can get rid of some of the symptoms of our mental illness. It doesn't always take it all away, but it helps us to cope better so that we can function and live out God's purpose in our lives. 
Uh, and then finally here, we've got uh, a couple other scriptures here that, that speak to prayer. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was, recover- who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, which is an intervention in itself, right? He's saying, I welcome you, I accept you, and I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of your illness. He touches the guy, and he says, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then we see here for Paul again, the the thorn in the flesh we've heard about. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. These are both about prayer, right? They're both about reaching out verbally and experientially to the Lord of the universe to heal us. And in the leprosy case, we get the healing. Whatever Paul's thorn in the flesh is, doesn't come. No healing there. So we're supposed to do this in faith. And when it doesn't happen, we have to have faith that there's something else for us in this. Or maybe for those around us, right? The man who got forgiven before he was healed, right? It's, our story is used to change other people's stories. So we see that uh, God's word, oh, and I think we may have one more here. Do we have one more? Yeah. So finally in Philippians here, being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that good work, again, just like Jeremiah, that good work doesn't always mean I'm going to feel good and happy all the time, but it means God's got a plan to use me and my life for his purposes and that eventually, eternally, suffering's going to end. All right. So we see that God's word encourages us us to seek comfort and healing through support groups, medical intervention, therapy, prayer, and through intentional hope in his promises. So I'm going to invite the band to come on back up as we get ready to close here. But I want to ask you about what's keeping you stuck. What is it that's holding you back from seeking and getting help? Is it fear? Is it shame? I don't want to see, I don't want my daddy to see me sad. Some version of that? Are you isolating yourself? Or maybe do you care too much about what people think? Are you maybe afraid of receiving a no or a not now answer from God when you pray? The the truth that I hope you walk out of here today with is that mental illness, whether you see it in yourself or someone you love, or, or simply in someone you run into in this building or work or at your kids' baseball games, it's complex. Treating mental illness takes time, patience, perseverance, your own commitment to an involvement in the healing process, help from medical and behavioral health professionals, consistent prayer, and a solid understanding of the promises of God, both those that are relevant for this life and especially those that are relevant for the end of our suffering and the life to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for your promises that... uh, that someday our our suffering will end. Uh, I pray that for those in this room and in this community who who need your love and your comfort and your peace and your healing, Father, that that you would bring that in whatever way you see fit and that that as we continue to suffer and and deal with the the struggles and the thorns in our own flesh, God, that, that you would surround us with community like we have here at the mission. God, you know what our needs are. You know our sufferings before we even speak them. And yet you still call us to cry out to you. You call us to reach out for for support 
And I pray, God, that, that we would use the supports you put in our lives and that we would, we would see those as good things and not shameful things, God. That we would not see the thorns in our flesh as things that we should be ashamed of or that we should feel guilty about, God. Yeah, there are going to be some consequences for our actions, God, but, but you forgive. You give us grace. And I pray that you would heal the physical and the psychological things in our lives, the, the social and relational problems, God, the, the things we struggle with every day. I pray that you would help the people of this church to rally around anyone who has a need and that you would embolden those who have needs to, to reach out and speak out and ask for that help so that they can receive your healing. Lord, this church is doing a good work in Redlands and... Uh, I just pray that you would, you would help the people of this church to give recklessly of their time, of, of their spirit, of their money, of their other resources, of their intelligence, their hands, Father, their healing hands. I pray that you would use them to reach this community. So as we prepare to, to give to you and, and demonstrate to you that we know that everything we have is already yours, Father, and we're just grateful for what we have. Father, I pray that you would just help us to be there for each other and, and to reach out to this community in your name. And I pray all these things in your son Jesus' precious, gracious name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.